This is the Private Capital Talent Series from PFA, episode two. And we've invited LinePoint Group's uh, John Brock, uh, Wire Secure's Tony Chung, and PFA's uh, Ryan Berger. And as the headline said uh, on LinkedIn, or if you got an email invite, um, this is on the lessons uh, from digitizing private capital, which is um, an idea that's batted around a little bit. And we're going to attempt to see what it looks like in the wild here and come away with um, maybe a working definition. And, uh, and, and as, as we were saying, lessons on what this group has learned uh, along the way at this stage. Um, I'll say again, uh, for everyone that's joining, if you have questions, we would love to see them. We're gonna carve some time out at the end um, to share those with the group. And uh, afterwards, we would, we would love to have your feedback and any um, pointers you might have uh, for the next few episodes, as well as um, guests and topics you'd like to hear us uh, talk about or talk about more. Um, and stay tuned because we're looking to have uh, one of these a month um, so long as folks are excited and interested in hearing more. So digitizing private capital, we're going to start with John and um, ask him about uh, what uh, what workflows uh, we want to focus on as as um, an example of how uh, private capital is digitizing. We're going to pass that ball to Ryan, and then we're going to go to Tony and uh, ask him uh, what, you know when the money when the money needs to go from one place to the right next place. Uh, what uh, what a digitized private capital uh, workflow and solution looks like. Um, we're going to start, John, with you with the sort of uh, nebulous question. Um, what is digitizing private capital? What, is, what does that look like in reality? Yeah, thank you, Chris. I'm really excited to have today's discussion here and to be able to share our perspectives on what it means to digitize private capital. Uh, I think it'd be really helpful just to take a step back. Like, why do firms want to digitize? Uh, what is in it for them, really? And I think the business case around that it's really going to always be tied back to one or more of three drivers. Either the firm's looking to create efficiencies, either they're looking to enable scale, growth, drive value, we kind of bucket all, all of that into one, or they're looking to address operational risks. And I know uh, Tony will have definitely a perspective on, on some of those as we talk later on. Um, next, I'd say it's really important, though, to understand beyond just why firms digitize, it's important to understand that each firm is kind of at a at a different stage in terms of its di digital transformation. And I think it's really helpful to think about it as a journey and, and really a three-stage journey that a firm overall and then specific departments within that firm are going through. And so that first stage in the journey for most firms that looked like is they're using a lot of spreadsheets. Uh, that tends to be a really common theme uh, within the client organizations that we work with, a lot of spreadsheets being used uh, for key critical business functions like accounting data, pipeline data, portco financials, carry plans, banking data, all of those types of things. And the firm really hits an inflection point here in stage one where they say, gosh, we can't collaborate like this together anymore. Uh, we've got version control issues with spreadsheets, feels really disconnected, it's super hard to report off of, to share information, and there's this realization that we need to have proper systems in place to manage our funds, manage our investments, manage our investors. Stage two for most firms 
they've got systems in place. They've, they've kind of graduated from spreadsheets into proper systems, but they're looking to drive greater adoption and use of those systems. They're looking to derive more value out of the investments that they've made in those technologies. And so the conversations that we're having in stage two are really, how do we streamline processes? How do we integrate these systems better? Um, things along those lines. And then you know, we've got firms that are in stage three, and then there's a recogni recognition at that point, I'd say, that isn't this data that we have to manage? It's kind of data that we get to manage. And there, there's a wealth of capability that can be enabled for organizations when they start to change their viewpoint around data and think of it as a competitive advantage, think of it as an asset, and not something that you have to sort of put in a system. And there, there's this thought that, boy, we've seen so many deals over the decades. We've been through so many fundraising cycles. What are the insights that we can start to draw upon that enable us to shorten those fundraising cycles, to do more deals, to do deals faster, to engage with companies earlier in the process? And you know, this is a more advanced level for firms. And I'd stress that every firm, again, is at a different stage here. Some are at stage one, stage two, stage three, and then within that certain departments, right, are at different stages. But the key thing for firms to be thinking about here when they're digitizing private capital is what's the next step for your firm, right? And how can you take that step with confidence? I'll slow my mute button there. Um, that's fantastic. It sounds like a maturity cycle a little bit. Absolutely, I'd say so. Yeah, absolutely. You're never really done, right? But it's... Um, Absolutely. It's very helpful to kind of think of it in terms of a maturation process for an organization. So if I'm in one of those uh, stages and we look at today, literally today, um, can you give us some context? I think you talked about, you, you were alluding a, a bit, I felt, to some of the triggers that leads folks to figure out what the right entry point for digital is or the entry point to the next stage. Uh, what's going on right now with conversations you're having with folks in the private capital world? Yeah, really, really interesting question. You say right now, I kind of glance at the the date and see March 31st and think kind of quarter end, and that, that's sort of one line of thinking. And I think it's good to explore that because there's a lot of processes in a private equity firm that revolve around month end, quarter end, year end. So uh, we'd love to kind of unpack that a little bit. Then I also think about 2022. And just some of the themes that are big in our industry right now for growing private capital firms, everybody's dealing with the challenge of how do you attract and retain great talent. And so I'd like to do kind of a double click on both of those. Um, for the first one, right, we think about quarter end processes, uh, fi the finance department is really a key hub or an intersection point for a lot of the mission critical processes of the firm. You think about things like Portco financials, valuations, exit planning, forecasts, waterfall calculations, uh, financial reporting, GP carry plans. For many firms, these are very disconnected processes that are being run on spreadsheets. And right now, firms are feeling the pain of having to maintain and update a lot of spreadsheets, copy and paste, have multiple sources of the truth. It, it translates into long days, inefficient processes, a risk of errors, staff spending more time on processing and managing data and less on really driving insights and value out of that data. Um, so that's kind of where my head goes initially when we think about quarter end. And 
the beautiful thing about it is it can be a much more connected experience. Um, when you think about, just take for example, like a deal and how it's being valued, think about exit project projections, thinking about how that flows through the waterfall, what that means to an employee in terms of their carry, all these things are very connected. And so when we're working with a, a private capital organization, a lot of it is stepping back and really helping them understand how all these things connect um, so that you can get out of that, that process of having to manage these things in very siloed systems or spreadsheets and start to systematize and, and connect the organization in, in a really beautiful way. The, um, the second point, Chris, to get to is just on that trend around attracting and, and retaining talent. I touched really briefly there on carry plans. Um, I think that's an interesting aspect that we could talk about here because everybody wants to understand their compensation. Everybody wants to understand if a deal exits at this value at this date in the future, what does that mean for me as an employee within the firm? And I think that's something that traditionally private capital firms haven't done a great job of being able to communicate to employees. It's the most important thing for an employee in many cases is their compensation and understanding their total comp and how does, how does carry um, really tie into that and firms helping employees to appreciate the value of carry. I think the other aspect of this is just from an employee work experience. Employees want to be working with uh, the latest and greatest technology. They want to be spending more time using tools and technologies that allow them to derive more insights, do higher value analysis, and a lot less time on just managing data and trying to make sure that different spreadsheets are all lining up. And so it's just, if an employee is faced with the, the question, do I want to work in an organization that's using cutting edge tech? and is really allowing me to, to use my skills to add the most value? Or am I gonna be with an organization that I'm just kind of managing these data and these disconnected spreadsheets? It's a much more attractive uh, experience for an employee to be using technology where possible. That's excellent. And I really appreciate the road signs you've, uh, you've put down on, um, on, on carry and, um, and transparency and, um, and talent, which I think we're going to circle back to. Not only was this the um, this is the talent uh, strategy series, but we'll come back to um, Tony with you on on, on wire secure. Um, if we focus on on waterfall um, calc uh, in particular, and start the ball rolling uh, from you to Ryan to Tony on a particular sequence of activities, um, can you tell us more about the pain point? Um, the pain point there. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're working with, with organizations. We're helping them really understand what are the processes that are most time consuming, that are most tedious, and Waterfall absolutely fits within that, those uh, characteristics. Um, something you've got to do every quarter, got to do when deals exit, uh, and it's a pretty painful analysis and one you've got to absolutely get right. So it's a great candidate for, for being able to systematize that. And so we'll work with organizations on, first of all, making sure that the source data that feeds into their waterfall models is clean, it's tagged properly. And for most organizations, that means having a proper fund accounting system in place, um, really thinking through how the source data is managed so that it can flow seamlessly into that model. And then, you know, whether it's a European style model, if it's deal by deal, hypothetical, realized, these are all uh, models that can very well be systematized. And so we've had great success doing that with organizations. I think the real carrot though, 
is how do you connect that into broader firm and fund models? And how do you connect that into carry models? And not just stop with waterfall and say, this is how it impacts the distribution, or this is how it impacts financial statements, but to continue to ask that question, what other processes does this hook into? Um, and that's where firms can really derive the most benefit when they think holistically about waterfall. I like this idea of how the different pieces connect, which then allows us to uh, connect over to Ryan. Um, so after what John has described there with waterfall, uh, where would PFA solutions uh, pick that up? Where does Carrie enter the picture if we focus on that? Sure, sure. Thanks, thanks, Chris. And uh, totally agree with Jonathan on all the points we're seeing across our client bases, trying to improve efficiencies, improve controls wherever they can across across processes. In terms of how how we what we do at PFA ties into waterfalls is FirmView is a platform that manages all of employees and partners allocations to that profit share that's calculated as the as a result of the waterfall calculation so both realized and unrealized so if the fund accountants generate the waterfall or the fund administrator runs the waterfall and there's distributable carry or realized carry they sell investments or they have other proceeds uh, let's just say a million dollars our clients will process that million dollars into FirmView and will automatically allocate down to all the individual employees and partners that have a predefined percentage share of the proceeds of, of any distributions or of carried interest that's received by the fund. So our clients are then able to apply escrow holdbacks, tax withholdings, loan repayments, other adjustments, and then generate the statements out to employees. Uh, and finally, they will process the, the money to all the employees' bank accounts. So that's the, the first part of how we connect to the waterfall. The second part of how we connect to the waterfall is on the unrealized carry. So as Jonathan mentioned, on a quarter by quarter basis, there's a calculation that's run, it can be complicated. And if the firm is successful and they're in a position where there's performance fees or incentive fees, as a result of that waterfall calculation, our clients are able to put that into our system and then employees are able to see that transparency of how much is their carry percentage worth at any given point of time. Uh, so an example here is a client enters uh, or the results of the waterfall are $2 million unrealized. You know, there's, you know, the, the investments have done well. They will enter that $2 million into FirmU and it'll automatically allocate down to all the individuals and through their statements on the platform, individuals can see their portion and how much is vested and how much is invested. So that, that ties back to that point that Jonathan made earlier, where employees are able to see how, how good the funds are doing and how does, what does this mean from a personal economics perspective? So then, um, so this touches then, I think on what John was saying about transparency. And if it does, um, so there's the process of, of implementing, um, if we look, locate this, like in the conversation that a member of the firm has with the, with the CFO, is there a, is there a before and after that the digitizing, um, and, and focusing on carry represents? Yes. So how this correlates to the CFO is there's the annual comp comp process, and then there's conversations throughout the year, uh, depending on the employee and their, their situation. Uh, from an annual comp 
time frame, that's obviously a um, important time time for employees to see how much they're going to receive in their bonus and other other incentives. Uh, what this means for the CFO is it's a very busy time of year, or it could be the COO or controller or whoever's responsible for gathering all that information for that comp conversation. And we're seeing a lot of firms focus on the reporting so that they can provide aggregated analytics to employees that includes carried interest details, co-investment information, base, bonus, benefits, all in one view or statement. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into that. And an added component that we're seeing right now is the CFOs or other individuals that are responsible for producing these statements is adding in forecasting. So th just this week, we had a client that generated statements across all of their clients that included full compensation across the board. And their feedback to us after they had all of the comp conversations with the individuals was that forecasted carry was the, the most important part of the statement. They knew how much their salary was. They had a sense of what their bonus would be. They knew how much they had personally contributed to the fund, but they did not know what that future carry potential could be. Uh, so that, that was the feedback from the COO of this firm that had the comp conversation with all of the individuals. So we're just seeing this maturity and digitization in that overall data aggregation and dissemination to the employees right now. And then if we get back to, um, we're focusing on, on, um, on waterfall calc, we're focusing on carry. Um, and John was laying out um, three different stages that a firm might be in. Um, what is PFA Solutions uh, seeing in terms of firms either coming with a strategy for digital transformation in place or with a specific pain point is should you have a master plan in place and then methodically move through it or is there cause for starting with a particular place and then looking at how that informs the master plan from your, from your perspective sure sure yeah i think we love strategic plans we love to see where carry compensation fits in across the overall prioritization roadmap that our clients have, have laid out or folks like Jonathan have laid out for them. Uh, within the carry and compensation area, we are seeing that roadmap as well or helping our clients define that roadmap because there's so much that's manual or, or done in Excel right now. Uh, so absolutely, we always figure out what is that priority at any um, to start with. Sometimes it's statements. The last example where our clients just generated all of their comp letters out of the system. They signed on with our platform in January and their number one goal was by the end of March, let's generate all in compensation reports out of the system and disseminate those to employees. This firm hasn't enabled the employee portal that we offer or other, other bells and whistles. That was the number one priority. Uh, yesterday, we were on a call with the client whose number one priority was getting their bonus and deferred bonus plan on the system. Others want to focus on getting distributions in the system, tested, working, because they know they're going to start processing distributions soon. So we, we do try to figure out what is that roadmap? What are the quick wins? What are the priorities right now? Because there, there is that laundry list of things that, that they want when, when they come to us. And, and there's always more. <laughs> once we start implementing, once we start adding data, once we start adding reports, 
there and more people see the system, new ideas come about um, and add to that list of initiatives. So then uh, the, the part of their, their journey could then extend to um, moving money from, from one wallet to another and, and Tony. Uh, so logically it, it would progress, I think, to, to your court and waterfall carry. Um, um, I, I don't know if it's overly broad to, to, to say that you're on the security side of it um, and digital makes everything easier. But, um, but even when I was introduced to Teams and SharePoint, it's like, I don't want to hit a button that's going to make something go wrong. I really need somebody to, to walk me through this. Um, how do you approach digital and both the benefits and some of the um, scarier parts? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, so, I mean, you heard about how a lot of firms want to automate, you know, uh, waterfalls and carry plans and, and the complications that go along with it. And certainly FirmView is, is you know, one of those solutions that help um, simplify and automate that, that, that complex process. Imagine after all that, the money went to the wrong place, right? So just to give you some perspective, you know, according to the FBI, and this report actually came out last month, uh, in the U.S. alone in 2021, uh, you know, we in this country experienced an unprecedented number of uh, increase in cyber attacks and malicious cyber activity to the tune of almost $7 billion. Impersonator fraud is a category within cyber uh, act, malicious cyber activity, and impersonator fraud alone accounted for almost $2.5 billion, and that was, was reported. And we know a lot of these things don't get reported for reputational risk reasons and, and otherwise, right? And um, another statistic from the FBI, for better or worse, is you know there's so much of this cybercrime going on that you know if you have a loss under a million dollars, they're just not going to look at it because there's so much going on and they're so much short-staffed. And when you add to that that the mention that for example, an average capital call loss is about eight hundred thousand dollars. Right, um, you know, there, there's some issues here, right? So, you know, what does this all mean? You know, while it's essential to keep the bad actors out, which a lot of security solutions do, you know, it's equally important to ensure that the good actors are who they say they are and that they haven't been compromised. So, on that point of um, good bad actors, um, we you know, we have concerns about cybersecurity right now. There's things going on in Europe. Um, is there, does that, is that relate to, to what we're talking about here? Um, you know, I think just cyber crime and cyber criminals in general are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, so I'll share with you some stories that we've heard in the, in the market. Uh, I recently heard a story from a cybersecurity consultant where a private equity firm had a security breach. And in this instance, the cyber criminals access the firm system where they keep all of the investor data. If the cyber criminals actually knew what they had their hands on and what they had access to, they could have easily changed all of the wire instructions for all of the investors and redirected funds to fraudulent accounts. By the time the GP found out, it would be too late. And, and you know, what we're also hearing more about too is we're hearing just more about simple email account take, takeovers, right? Where, for example, 
you know, this is a highly targeted market, private capital markets. So cyber, cyber criminals are watching email dialogues between the GP and the LP. They know when the calls and distributions are coming, right? They understand the timing, the nuances of the communication, and they understand the details of tr those transactions. And they're just waiting for the perfect moment to strike. So then that um, brings us, brings me at least back to, the, to an earlier point <clears throat> about um, culture and, and, and behavior change. Um, and, and, and I noticed that you said, <clears throat> I think it was um, uh, impersonator fraud as opposed to email fraud. Um, yes. What are the cultural changes or the behavior changes that you need along with the technology? How do those two work together and uh, maybe trigger conversations with you and, and prospects? Sure. Yeah. Not to sound like the scary guy who's ruining the party here. Right. Um, but I use the term impersonate fraud specifically because, you know, everybody knows about business email compromise, right, where somebody's changed something in an email address or it's a Nigerian prince asking for money. Right. And those are those are easily detected because, you know, you have email filters that, that do that. But when the email address is good in this in this example, um, you know, it, it actually pass through those security uh, features and they're, they've already, you know, they're in the fortress, right? So, um, it, and, and again, the differences or the nuance is what's happening more. And again, you could, uh, if you have free time, you wanna go to the FBI website and look all this stuff up. Uh, actually it was in, in February, they sent out a warning where participants or cyber criminals were joining Zoom calls, Teams calls, Right, and they would just—they don't have their face showing, right? But again, they're—they're they're hacking into these things again, just understanding what's going on in each of these firms or communications between uh, LPs and GPs, right? So it's beyond email compromise. This is impersonator fraud. They're just finding other vehicles to just, um, you know, put themselves in the middle of a transaction. You know, to your point about culture, Chris. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing where. Not to oversimplify this or use a, a kind of an analogy here, but sometimes this is like vitamin and aspirins, right? You know, if we know vitamins are, are good for you, you should probably take them. Uh, however, when you have a migraine, you're going to do anything you can to go find that aspirin, right? So in our world, if a client had firsthand experience or heard one of their peers was a victim of impersonator fraud and lost money, they will address the problem because they can't afford to have it, uh, have it happen again. Uh, the other uh, element here, too, is unfortunately many cyber insurance policies do not provide enough coverage against this type of loss uh, when it does happen. So certainly I think um, now as there's more of an acceleration to digitize um, you know, businesses, clients are open to change now more than ever is what we're seeing. And however, you know, providing a frictionless experience uh, to what uh, both John and, and Ryan were saying too, it's, it's really paramount to driving change and adoption. Perfect. Um, <clears throat> I'm watching the clock. Um, let's get to a lightning round here, uh, if you will, and come back to that question that we, um, John was uh, nice enough to field uh, at the very beginning. <clears throat> so given that we've just sort of walked through um, waterfall, carry, then the then the um, the transaction, um, uh, John. Would you be willing to revisit the def, you know defining digitizing uh, private capital and what that involves? What what lessons we should take out of this? 
Yeah, happy to, Chris. I think the big takeaways and the way we guide and, and counsel our, our clients is really to be very balanced and to be very pragmatic when they're thinking about technology transformation, digitization, things along those lines. And so it's important, right, to have an overarching strategy to understand how these, these parts connect within an organization, absolutely. Um, but you wanna balance that as well with being able to take action and deliver results within your organization. And so when you talk about things like managing carry plans and compensation, we talk about things like impersonator fraud, if, if those are gaps in your organization, by all means, shore those up, get those addressed. Um, and in tandem with that, I also think about you know, the broader strategy and just making sure that you have confidence that as you're making individual technology decisions, it's fitting in within the broader picture, right? And you're you're able to then approach those decisions with confidence and know that you're you're marching towards you know a broader technology ecosystem and it's all going to fit and play nicely together. Excellent, Tony. Same question. Yes, uh, three points come to mind. Um, first, being you know digitizing private capital is about driving growth. To echo what John was saying earlier, uh, two, you have to be intentional about providing the best client or, or investor experience. Uh, and three, and again, what's resonated here too, is you know this is an exciting time for digital solutions in uh, private markets. But however, it always comes down to the people, the commitment and leveraging their talent and experience to really shape that digital transformation journey. Excellent. I love the people part because it's the talent series. Ryan, uh, can you bring us home? What's, what's the, how would you cap that off? Yeah, I just uh, totally agree with Tony and Jonathan. The other item I would add is expect the unexpected with even our simplest clients, there's always nuances, there's always things that come up, there's always changes that we have to adapt to. So it's it's really embracing change, moving from those spreadsheets to systems, but then knowing that there will be some hiccups, some other things that come up along the way that you have to, to address. Excellent. Uh, we do have one question uh, from the audience. And if folks can stick with us for a few moments, um, this is about, do you see more demand, uh, coming from GPs or LPs who's driving the, um, digitization conversation and Tony, maybe I can start with you. Cause I think you have an answer on your side. Um, well, certainly from a security perspective, it's both sides, what we're seeing, you know, both kind of the GPs and LPs, um, on the LP side. You know, imagine you're making, you know, 50, 100 commitments across many funds and GPs, you're getting bombarded with email, capital calls, access portals, and so forth. And there's a hesitancy to click on these emails because you don't know if the person is who they say they are on the other end. So in those cases, uh, you know, LPs would love a solution whereby they can basically verify that the party on, their other, on the other end is who they say they are. Same thing goes the other way when a GP is sending money, whether it's a distribution or paying expenses. Uh, and again, and to just the, uh, the, the example that I gave before where someone's CRM system got hacked and they could have changed all the information, right? So like, why take a chance? This is a 30 second process to just ensure the person is who they are before the money goes out the door. If our panelists can stay, we've got two more questions after that. Does anyone wanna handle that one or otherwise I'll move to the next uh, two questions. Okay. What degrees of sophistication are you seeing regarding how carry gets allocated to employees 
Are employees getting a share of all carry generated or is it based on deal performance? Ryan, that sounds like for you. Sure, sure. Uh, we see varying degrees of complexity. Some firms allocate fund level carry, some do deal by deal, some have a hybrid approach where there's a vintage share concept, some even allocate carry down to the individual funding round of deals based off of employees that are there at the time of those new investments. So every firm does things slightly different. Uh, so we can certainly talk about the varying degrees of that. Uh, the, on the part about whether or not all employees get allocations, we do see some clients where every single employee across the entire firm gets a carry allocation. Uh, that, that is something that we see with a number of our clients. And uh, a lot of them have a, a lot of, have a cap like VP and above get carry. So it really depends on the organization and their overall comp, comp program. For example, a firm that, that may not provide carry to all employees might have a different bonus structure in place. Um, so yeah, we, we are seeing complexity. We are seeing deal by deal clients um, and we are seeing fun, really you know, simple fund level carry allocations. Um, and I, I, I guess it would be a third, a third, a third in, um, from a complexity perspective. A third of, of the firms that we talk to and our clients have very complex models. A third are kind of in between where there's some nuances and then a third are fairly straightforward carry models. Great, and then uh, this one's for you, Tony, and then John, I'm coming back to you. And then I think we will wrap. Uh, are you seeing, Tony, this is for you, are you, are you seeing private capital firms embrace anti-phishing uh, training and tools as um, a critical piece of their cybersecurity framework? If not, why do you think this is? Um, embrace is an interesting word. You know, we all go take those tests, right, to make sure that we adhere to the best practices and we, you know, we get a test result and, and so forth. Um, so it's just, it's just more standard operating procedure. Uh, what's interesting, though, uh, there, and I'm happy to share, uh, Chris, with you, and maybe get distributed to the group. There was a hard, Harvard Business Review article that came out recently, and it said 65% of employees who actually go through these sorts of trainings, uh, when when something is time critical um, and they're under duress, they actually bypass all of that training they've gone through because they got to get something done. And it's at that moment when there's urgency, where certainly in our world, there's a lot of this cyber crime and, and uh, you know, the wire fraud risk that happens. So um, embrace, interesting word. I think people just do it because they have to do it. Uh, but nevertheless, even after going through it, you know, these unfortunately, uh, you know, these problems still occur. Okay, this is the last uh, question. Uh, John, I wanted to um, close with you if that's okay and come back to that uh, question about where demand is coming from, you know, the LP or the GP side, or um, and when I say demand, demand's one way of looking at it if you're a tech vendor, um, push or pressure um, to focus on digitization or seeing an opportunity with another. Um, do you see any particular side that is pulling it? Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. It has a few different angles to it. So I think, you think about an LP or a GP, they each have sort of their own journey that they're on. It's a little bit different and there's a lot of overlapping parts to it, but there's certainly um, a lot of digital transformation taking place at you know, both of those different profiles. I think the other interesting angle to it is LPs and the diligence that they do on GPs when they're looking to make an investment. 
as well. And so if the question is more around like, do LPs care that GPs are shoring up their technology stacks or addressing operational risk, have good systems in place? The answer is absolutely yes, uh, because they invest um, during that fundraising period when they're thinking about whether or not to place a commitment with the manager, um, they invest in doing diligence assessments and really making sure that the technology is in place. And we see those assessments becoming more and more rigorous and more pointed as LPs are also more aware of where the risk areas are within a GP and want to make sure that they're entering into a relationship with a GP that has a strong tech stack and has controls in place for, for how it's performing its operations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'll just pick, oh, sorry. I was just going to piggyback on that. You know, some of our clients, the COOs, CTOs are spending a lot more time uh, with LPs or the consultants that are doing the operation will do diligence on them. So there certainly is an uptick in that rigor, especially on the cyber side. You know, there's consultants out there that are specialized in doing operational due diligence on GPs on behalf of LPs and they're just getting smarter and smarter on what, what the risks are, and they're providing that service to the LPs to do that due diligence on the GPs. Thank you very much to everyone um, who has um, who's, um, stayed with us. Thank you, panelists, uh, for joining us. And uh, this has been fantastic. I can't wait till next month's webcast. More on that soon. Thank you, everybody.